not only in a moral imperative, there's a business imperative, there are all these imperatives. It's a human right perspective that we all deserve to have these opportunities, conditions, power, and resources to achieve optimal health. Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Uh, I have a great guest with me today. I have Dr. Aletha Maybank, uh, currently serves as the Chief Health Equity Officer and Senior Vice President for the American Medical Association, uh, where she focuses on embedding health equity across all the work of the AMA and leading its Center of uh, for Health Equity. Uh, Dr. Maybank, thank you so much for being off me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Corey. No, absolutely. So, you know, before we get into the topic today, how about you tell the people a little bit about yourself and uh, what gets you up in the morning? Um, yeah, no problem. So I'm a, um, uh, I guess by profession, I'm a pediatrician and preventive medicine uh, public health doctor. Uh, I have had really unique opportunities to um, do this work of equity and um, within like institutions. Um, for the last 15 years and, and the unique opportunity really to start uh, centers for health equity and offices of minority health um, in different places across the country. I've worked a lot in government um, and now it's like my first time really not working in government. Uh, I come from uh, a family from Antigua. I am a dual citizen. So I have that perspective. Grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I've been mostly on the West Coast, I would say. I love to vote. And I love to travel. <laughs> Those are all the things that that make me me. I love arts, all of that. Awesome, awesome. It's good to be well rounded, for for sure. So well, it's good to live life to its fullest. That's what optimal health is about, from my perspective, and well being. Yes, and and from what it sounds like with the work that you're doing with the Amer- uh, American Medical Association, um, it's allow yet that same mission, but for everyone. You know, so. Um, when we're talking about health equity, you know, what does that for what does that mean to you, and why is is it important? Right. Well, I think what we um, know and what um, not what we know one just by the the evidence and the science that's out there, the data that's out there in terms of like numbers and statistics that we know that different communities across the country don't experience the same kind of opportunities. They don't have the same kind of conditions. They don't have the same resources or the same power in order to achieve optimal health and well-being. And so this is data that has actually been noted from the time really uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois uh, in the early 1900s in his book, The Philadelphia Negro, uh, of which he noted and well-documented. And it's actually a really kind of landmark study that he did at that time, (coughs) excuse me, that launched the field of sociology 
but really noted that the health of ex-slaves was um, worse than that of whites in Philadelphia and really looked to the conditions that they were living in that really created that poor health outcome. It wasn't, it wasn't about blaming black people. Um, and he really did a lot to, to elevate that in terms of like their behaviors or their genetics, but it were all these conditions that they were forced to live in, um, what, what, you know, their housing conditions, what they had access to, to jobs and education. And then the, the, the consciousness that he had at that time too, that he elevated, um, was the consciousness around race, um, and racism more explicitly of how it set up those conditions of which people lived in. So the work now, um, you know, how over a hundred years later, now and, and COVID kind of really exposed inequities. I think the public murder of George Floyd really propelled the conversation around structural racism and health and, and that being a public health crisis and all of its influences to creating these differences in health amongst different communities. I think it's it's better known and understood by people in the health community of these impacts. I would say though also I think there's science data and I think there's data of the lived experience. And if you talk to many black and brown people, other people who have been historically marginalized, they are very clear that they are not experiencing systems oftentimes in the way that people with power. So people who are historically white, who are male, who are cisgendered or or, um, identify as being straight, who are Christian, who have do not identify as having a, a disability um, and who are from and born in this country. They're, those are the folks who have tend to have the, the best health outcomes and also the best opportunities and access to resources, resources um, uh, power, um, and the conditions to create optimal health. So we are saying that it is absolutely not only in a moral imperative, there's a business imperative, there are all these imperatives. It's a human right perspective that we all deserve to have these opportunities, conditions, power, and resources to achieve optimal health. And the reality is, is that there are many unjust, avoidable, unnecessary, and unfair gaps that exist that are just, they're they're avoidable. Um, And oftentimes people don't realize that. Yeah. You know, I'm currently reading this book, uh, The Political Determinants of Health. Yes. Um, My buddy, uh, Daniel Dawes. Daniel Dawes. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Uh, he highlights a lot of that in, in the book, especially in that in that first chapter. The first chapter is kind of talking about what you're saying mm-hmm. that health equity and social determinants have has been a small discussion for a very very long time. This is this is nothing new, but mm-hmm. it's just to me. I guess the question I have: Yes, I, I know the the death of George Floyd and, and like that. Just like it felt like back to back to back traumas in in the black community, kind of lit a fire under the conversation. But what was it that? Um, why was it so quiet for so long? What? Why did it take this to really bring up the health of our underserved population? Yeah, and I think it, and it's the health of all. Communities, you know, because I, I feel the narrative is all one story. We're the story of America, right? Or the story of this land, the people of this land, per se, that is often segregated. So we don't understand that we're all part of the same story or our experiences um, are relatively interconnected. And oftentimes, to your point, 
I think, um, is that that history has been made invisible. Um, and people's realities and conditions have been made invisible. I mean, even look at mass incarceration. It's like only until the recent years that people really, outside of those who have studied it um, or been in the system themselves, have a real sense of all these impacts around mass incarceration. There are things around breastfeeding. Like, you know, there's so many histories. Reconstruction, for goodness sake. You know, there are a lot of folks who had no white Juneteenth. You know, had the, you know, my mother had no idea what Juneteenth because she wasn't from this country and there was nowhere really where it was taught or expressed. So all of this history, and I tie this history and understanding of what we know about health to the same narrative of these things have been been made invisible. Um, and there have been folks like myself, Daniel's one of them, who have been really screaming for a long time. And Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King even in his um, time even talked about you know the injustice in healthcare is one of the most inhumane um, injustices that exist right understanding that there existed uh, these differences and so you know I think it's it's that that context of suppression and oppression uh, to make sure that power holds on to power and that these stories aren't told and the bottom line is a lot of these stories haven't been of interest to major media, um, to even within the context of, of healthcare and, and science. I've spent most of my career in public health. So it's this larger understanding of what creates health, which talks about all the things that Daniel talks in his book about housing and transportation and all of those other things. But in healthcare, it's so focused, so narrowly focused on what happens within the, the, the walls of hospitals and doctor's offices and that's just a small part of what creates health, but that's where the power is and that's where the money is. So that's where the narrative around health has mostly been, around the healthcare system. Not so much around all these other conditions and contexts that create, create health. And that's how med students have been um, taught for over the last hundred years on the basic and clinical sciences. So you have physicians who have, uh, uh, when I say they have power, it's a very well-respected profession still to this day. I'm not saying that there are not issues within the profession. Of course there are. Um, but there's still a highly regarded profession, which when they speak, their voices are credible. They have power. They're in institutions of power, they tend to be. And so they do get listened to. And so if they're not trained with this narrative, they're not providing it. They're not thinking about it as they they treat their patients. And treat is it. It's not like a lot of work on prevention. It's, it's treat. Um, then you're, the, the whole nation is not going to have that same narrative around what creates health. So it is a, a huge gap. But what we are seeing, and even before COVID and the public murder of George Floyd, more and more people, especially in the health aid space, the policy space, really starting to connect those dots that really all policy is health policy, right? Anything, all these things have strong are strong contributors to how communities can be healthy or not. And really wealth whether you have it or not, to me, is one of the, the strongest predictors in terms of your ability to be able to, to have the power, the conditions, the resources, and the opportunities to create health. So the more and the our ability to have um, connection and context to this capitalist, capitalistic system, to be able to utilize it, to to generate and to build wealth for generations to come is really important for communities that are black and brown and historically marginalized. White communities have tremendous generational wealth that has been passed down for generations. And so 
you know, they have, there's this, there's a different base that they're building from in order to create help. That that's great. That's great. And I'm really enjoying this, um, this newfound interest in financial wellness within underserved populations. Uh, because I, I think, I think you're right. Um, that's where it starts. I, I feel like the, and the more and more we can educate people on that, the better. Um, yeah, I think, and the more we support our own businesses as black and brown communities and uh, women, you know, and um, other historically marginalized communities, I think it's going to be really important to sustaining that wealth and and and, and building that wealth as well. Um, but there has to be some narrative shifts and some mind shifts about who we are and how we value, you know, ourselves as as a people. We're clear there's there's a lack of value, as I say, and this comes up in the health equity context. Um, Kamara Jones, who is a leader um, and really somebody's shoulders that we all stand on, um, who gives a lot of frameworks. And she says, you know, there are three things that you really have to think about as we advance health equity. And the first one is valuing all people equally. And so it's easy for people to say, of course we do. Of course we do. You know, that's why, why wouldn't we do it? But if you look at your data um, of your institution or you look at the data of the country, it is clear we do not value all people equally. If you have disparate, different numbers, we're not valuing all people equally. Um, and so if we, we know that, that that's the case, then we always have to kind of um, call, <clears throat> excuse me, hold some accountability to that um, as institutional leaders, as institutional workers, um, but then I think it also just speaks to, again, what we have to do as people who are marginalized and how, how does value really show up for us and amongst us and by us um, becomes really critical to build wealth over time, but also to, to build that sense of, of, of justice um, so that we can have optimal health. No, that's good. That's good. Thank you. So, you know, creating equity for racial and ethnic underserved communities, uh, which are at risk of experiencing health and healthcare disparities, hasn't really, uh, has not been an easy task, obviously. Um, the AMA has been on the, on the front lines of this topic. And in 1989, the AMA noted unjustifiable differences in the treatments provided to African-Americans um, that must be eliminated. Uh, where do we stand when it comes to health equity today? Like, what have we, what are some of the things that you've seen that we've been able to do today within health equity? Well, it's a great question. You know, I, again, when you look at health equity, so I gave kind of the outcome definition, but it's important to understand that equity is, the, the, it's about the process, the process and all the things that happen in the process of getting there. And then the outcome itself, right? So those differences in health that, you know, black and brown people have higher rates of whatever you name the disease, you know, the, the higher rates of. So for the most part, when we look at health outcomes, there really hasn't been much change. Now, overall in this country, prior to COVID, you know, there has been a definite improvement in, in like life expectancy um, across the board. However, and even and even the gap. So we know that you know white people have a longer life expectancy than black people in this country. Those gaps were the gap was starting to narrow, but COVID hit, and now those gaps are widening again. Um, because as we can imagine, 
<clears throat> excuse me, there are so many stressors and stressed systems and structures that were already in place that are even more stressed now. And so while, you know, we have had some success in terms of, I would say, just around understanding the terms, I think getting the, the, the language out there, getting people to be more aware of what equity is, understanding and really more so now naming things like racism and white supremacy, the, the false notion of a hierarchy of human value based on skin color, I mean by that, as um, clear lenses of how our laws and structures have been created and therefore root causes of why these inequities exist, that's probably some, one of the bigger accomplishments over the last probably four, four to five years you know, um, to be able to name it, because if you don't name it, then not much is getting done. And you can imagine, I mean, you can see no matter what, anything racism is is named in and connected to critical race theory, which is what that is doing when you name racism, um, you know, it's getting its level of resistance as well. And so as, as in health is not immune to that, um, and it's part of every other education and all the other sectors that are naming and, and the legal system and all of that are naming racism and, and all the pushback and resistance. So I, I say that the accomplishment is around kind of really identifying root causes. So all the things you read in Daniel's book and the social determinants and the political determinants and these structures and the laws and the policies, and that it's not just about people and blaming them for the conditions that they live in, and their choices that they are able to make or not make because of the conditions they live in. There's a shift in that. It still exists if people don't understand it. But that's where I think the shift has been. Because when you shift that and the blame away from people, your solutions are different. And the way you go about you know, engaging different sectors. So that means if transportation is a problem, that means I, we have to engage like the transportation people along with the housing people along with whomever, you know, as part of like the solutions to driving health equity. It's not now, and I'm not saying we exclude the people um, who are experiencing that injustice because they probably are they're most proximate to seeing and having the experience of how that injustice plays out. So they have a critical importance of being centered and valued in terms of their input and their ideas. And not only that, just to the point of our conversation earlier around investment, you know, and making sure that they're invested in as a community, but also as a people. And they have the opportunity to have investment, if that makes sense, and equity in some of these solutions that oftentimes they get left out of. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the times they, they get left out of. And, you know, that's something I dealt with a lot early in my career when I would see patients at the hospital for um, prevention and it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want to eat better or eat well or, you know, make their appointments. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get there or they had to decide if they were going to have, you know, have a roof over their head. And who right. am I to be like, right. well, you know, your A1C is 7.2. They don't care nothing about the A1C. They're trying to survive. And I feel like that's where... um providers where the, the healthcare system can do something. Like you said, they have a voice, but it's not always the treatment. It's everything outside of, of that that is crucial to, to helping them improve their health. That's absolutely right. And I think the opportunity that we have at the AMA 
Um, and what we've really tried to utilize since starting the Center for Equity and understanding that physicians are our primary audience. Now, there has been, I think, in a fortunate way, um, kind of spillover in the larger community of medicine and healthcare and some of the work that we put forward. But there, if physicians and healthcare workers are not getting educated on the social and structural context of health, then we need to find ways to provide that education. And so we've been really, you know, we released a strategic plan uh, uh, two years ago or a year ago. My goodness, time's, uh, time's flying, but I guess not that fast. About a year ago, um, <clears throat> a little over a year ago, and in that strategic plan, talked about the the importance of kind of what we say either pushing upstream or or just really educating physicians on the public health context um, and on those other social drivers and structural drivers of health. So we've we've done um, we we launched an AMA educational hub, Health Equity Education Center that has a ton of resources um, and kind of education models. So they get credit, you know, as part of medical education, you you want these things called continuing medical education credits. So you get the credits when you take them and they contribute towards some of your professional and um, kind of boards and licensure opportunities. So we're putting out more and more resources to help connect those dots for um, physicians. So it could be on LGBTQ plus um, you know, kind of the experience and realities, um, people with disabilities, racism. How do you, like for your practice, how does it become an anti-racist practice? We have some modules on that. Um, I've launched, you know, along with my team, a prioritizing equity series where we listen and engage with um, healthcare workers that tend to be marginalized across this country. To have We've had a, a ton of conversations on many different topics. Daniel was one of the the invitees, Kamar Jones. We've had some just really wonderful people educate um, the physician audience, especially about all these contexts uh, around inequities. Um, and now we're working actually more directly with healthcare systems. Um, and we have we launched a, a peer network, um, really focused on them looking at their quality and safety management within hospitals. I'm sure if you were in hospital, you're kind of a little bit familiar with that. That you know. There are standards of quality that a hospital should be following mm-hmm. um, and safety that all hospitals should be following. And what's interesting in it is that, you know, there's a framework around it. And one of the pieces of the framework had equity explicitly, but there never was really much work done in that area nationally that was explicitly helping institutions kind of fill that particular void. And so that's one of the things that we're doing is trying to fill that void of what are the actual things that hospitals can do to put those checks and balances to ensure that they are not doing harm and perpetuating harm from the the micro level to the macro level within their institutions of which everybody's engaged with. So we have a cohort, I think it's about eight hospital systems that we have launched this year um, and we will continue to do more. And then we have also a national initiative that will be announced a little bit later on this year that we're working with payers and, and, um, physician organizations and other professional organizations around in order to really drive change at that structural level, the institutional level that we know um, us as patients and and the patients that we're trying to see are really impacted by. Right. What have you, from the little bit that you've done so far with that initiative, which sounds great, and I'll make sure I have all of those links in the um, show notes of this episode so people can go check that out. Um, what What kind of things have you 
learn from that so far? Is there anything that really stands out to you that you didn't think would be an issue or what does that look like so far? I think several things, you know, one, one of the really important opportunities around doing this work at an institutional level is accountability and having leadership show up. And so, you know, we were very strict in our criteria of engagement that it wasn't just one person from your institution that was going to be able to come, you know, you, it had to be like several reps from the executive team that have like the decision, you know, the power to make these decisions and other folks across the institution that also are experiencing how these systems actually work. So, you know, this opportunity <clears throat> to really, and then we, we, you know, we tried and thanks to my team who really pulled and designed this, but, you know, really trying this model, we've just really learned that one, it's just helpful because people need support in doing this work in an institution right. doing anti-racism work in an institution is challenging. It's and for me, all the reasons why people can imagine why it is like, it's not, it's not quite a surprise like, on many levels <laughs> um, right. of the why. Uh, Cause we see it all the time. But I think, I think one of the, I think the beauties of, of doing this is not only the folks within their institution, but because there are eight other health systems together, they've been able to kind of have a community of practice to kind of see and learn and also have that confidence that, you know what, we can do this because this hospital did this, we can actually do it too. And I think, you know, for me, again, another kind of myth and false narrative that we have in this country is this context of individualism, right? And and that, you know, we are all kind of islands and, you know, the myth of meritocracy and we work hard, you know, but the reality is, is that we all kind of thrive really well when we are acting and working in community and being collective with one another. And so I, I feel that that is one of the, the strengths that has absolutely been demonstrated through this. Uh, and then also, I just, I think just kind of realizing the lack of awareness that with all good intention, you know, health equity is not about good intention or bad intention. It's about the impact of our decisions. doesn't matter what your intention is. Because a lot of us think we have really great intention and we probably do. But because of our own blind spots, our biases, how we've always done things, culture, we have impacts that are not meeting what we need them to meet in order to have like a healthy society and healthy institutions. So what we're noticing are just, you know, these consistent gaps of knowledge um, uh, Mm. across the board and so and how to do this work. And so I think, again, the opportunity to be able to um, fill those gaps, uh, I think, has been rewarding across for everybody. No, that's amazing. You know, Dr. Maybank, thank you so much uh, for being on the Healthy Project podcast. I really appreciated your your time. Um, For anybody listening that wants to learn more about you, uh, the American uh, Medical Association, what you're doing with the Center for Health Equity, uh, where can they find you? You Where can they reach you at? Yes, um, I think at the Center for Health Equity I don't know what our center for health is, but my, I'm on my LinkedIn. I don't know what our email is there, but I am on LinkedIn. So I, and I respond pretty well to LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to kind of reach out directly, you're more than welcome to do that. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. Um, and I'll make sure I have all the necessary links in the description of this episode. Um, and everyone, thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I'll holler at you next time.